Hello and welcome to the Story Toolkit. I'm Basim El-Wakil, co-author of Action, The Art of Excitement with Robert McKee, and joining me is Luke Lionel, writer and part of the McKee Storylogue team. So today we're going to be talking about The Producers, which came out in 1968. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and as always, if you have any questions that you would like to ask um, us uh, and get us to talk about on the podcast, then you can tweet us uh, at Basim Story um, or myself at Lucius Malcolm. That's right. And uh, we're going to be talking about The Producers today, and it's rather timely because we just found out that Sadly, Gene Wilder passed away. Um, I, I presume Richard Pryor is waiting for him. Oh man, <laughs> that would be a me- no. It's just that would that would it's be true. a meeting worth seeing. Yeah, well, we saw it four times. It true. was always great. Gene Wilder. Um, growing up, I loved. I still. I mean, Gene Wilder is a gem. Um, really is a gem, and uh, really rare in terms of just he's just so lovable in fact one of the things that I was noticing as I was making the favourite ten lists and everything was I didn't have a Gene Wilder film on it which was so bizarre because growing up I used to watch Gene Wilder films again and again my favourite thing that he ever did was the hop kangaroo hop song from the song <laughs> uh, from the film The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes Younger Smarter Brother where he plays Sherlock Holmes Younger Smarter Brother and one scene they start singing and dancing and have a whole musical scene. It's the only scene like that in the film. It's hilarious. You hop, hop, gang. It's just funny with Madeline Kahn and Marty Feldman. Um, this was after they did Young Frankenstein. Frankenstein? Um, uh, and then, of course, there, there's, which we'll get to, the producers, but there was also um, Willy Wonka and The Chocolate Factory. And then there was the four films he did with Richard Pryor, Silver Streak, Stir Crazy, uh, Hear No Evil, See No Evil. <laughs> And another you, um, and he's just—he was just this wonderful, wonderful actor, and it's just absolute gem. Like one of those where, like, he was just that family entertainment. Like everyone, everyone you could, no matter what age you were, you, everyone loved Gene Wilder in the same way, which is really weird. It wasn't like he had a set of jokes for the adults and a set of jokes for the kids or whatever. It was just he appealed to everyone, no matter. Mm. Just he was timeless. And universal, and he was wonderful. And um, I was just a yeah. big fan of the, his delivery, the yeah. deadpan yeah. delivery. <laughs> Look at that, steady as a rock. Yeah, but I shoot with this hand. Amazing sounds. Jeez, it's so funny in that. It's the Waco kid. Um, and so, yeah, it's sort of, sort of timely because um, we can talk about one of the reasons why he's he's so great. Um, yeah. It, you talk about the deadpan. There was particularly. Uh, I remember everyone loves this that moment in Willy Wonka with the, when he sings the Pure Imagination song. Yeah. And what's so wonderful about that is there's a wistful melancholy to him singing, mm. and what he's singing is like a pure, and he's smiling, and it's sweet and it's light, but as it's really sad. It's a really sad song, and he sings it really sadly, and yet you're smiling. Yeah. And no one else can do that. No one else could. I, 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 he just is brilliant because of course when you watch the rest of the film you realise the reason he's sad is because he's saying goodbye to the chocolate factory he's saying goodbye to all the times that he had there and that's his goodbye song to the to the reason for his life and he's looking around hoping someone can take over and he's worried that it won't outlast him and yet he's singing this song and he's eating 
like daffodil cups and, <laughs> and you're just like you can't help but smile um yeah he just he was just this gift to children and anyway, it was great so um so we're going you wanted to talk about the producers yeah the producers because which i read earlier was his uh which is his big big break on that film. W- that was his big break yeah uh, him and zero mostel that was that he was his big break was the producers he, he wasn't really known until then and then after that he took over for lee marvin and did the blazing saddles film and then he wrote uh, and starred in young frankenstein and uh so him and mel brooks gave him a career and uh, he did wonderfully with it. Yeah. Um, so, the reason to talk about the producers is it's essentially the perfect comedy. <laughs> um, and the reason is, uh, okay, I presume everyone has seen the producers, the original producers. If you haven't, here's the basic premise of it. There is a uh, producer called Max Bialystok. And Max Bialystok, played by Zero Mostel, is a Broadway producer. And he is not doing very well. Uh, he has to finance his plays by sleeping with old geriatric women and carousing them and telling them how, how wonderful they are. And it's not working, and he's, 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 doing, he's just sweating all the time. <laughs> like, messed up. And Gene Wilder plays an accountant called Leo Bloom, who's sent to look at his books and sort out his books. And Leo Bloom is a really neurotic person, and so immediately the two of them do not get on very well. Uh, Max Bialystok enjoys terrorising Leo Bloom, and Leo Bloom can't stand up for himself. And as he's going through the books, Leo discovers something, and he realises that he that Max Bialystok put on a play and it flopped and but what he did is he raised more money than he needed to actually run the play so he actually made more money with a flop than he did with a hit because no one asks for their investment back with a flop but they ask for their investment back with a success they expect to get their money back if they've invested but if it's a flop they don't bother so what happened was he goes like you, you, what you've done is you've actually made more money with a flop and he goes really and all Max Bialystok cares about is the money and he's saying I can make more money with a flop and he goes well if you really wanted to get really devious about it yeah you could you could make a lot of money by intention and so then they come up with this plan they are going to put on the worst play in Broadway history and make and clean up and Max Bialystok completely corrupts Leo Bloom <laughs> Completely corrupts him, takes him out to the park, <laughs> like gives him candy floss, treats him like a kid. They go on the boat down the canal, all that stuff, and then the water fountain. And finally, it's like Leo, you know, you deserve all the things that you're not getting in the ocean. Right, I do. And they decide, okay, we're gonna we're gonna rip off these old ladies. We're gonna raise lots of money, and we're gonna put on the worst play imaginable. So they start reading all the plays, and look, and they're looking for the worst play they can find, to buy the rights to, to then put on and have it tank on opening night so badly, have it be so ruthlessly destroyed that they shut down after opening night, like it doesn't even go on past opening night. That's their plan, make loads of money. So as they're raising the money for this play, they're getting 
they're saying like you own 25% and then the next person comes and you own 50%. The next person comes and you own 50%. And so they've given away hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of percent. They can't possibly pay back the investors what they've promised them. It's not possible. That has to fail. And they come up and they find the play that they're going to put on, which is Springtime for Hitler. And this is a play written by <laughs> written by a playwright who is a Nazi Hitler-loving guy. <laughs> He loves Hitler, and he's written a love letter to Adolf Hitler in this play called Springtime for Hitler. And the uh, the writer is played by Kenneth Mars, and Kenneth Mars is adorable. He was in Malcolm in the Middle. He was uh, in Young Frankenstein. See Malcolm in the Middle? Yeah, he was the ranch owner that Francis worked for. <gasps> which I, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I love cows. They have this. <laughs> yeah, that guy. He's hilarious. He was in Police Academy 6. He was the bad guy in Police Academy 6. Kenneth Mars, man. <laughs> um, so Kenneth Mars was um, he plays he plays this crazy, crazy man who is in love with Hitler. They get the rights off him, and then so they've got springtime for Hitler. Then they need the worst director in the world. So they hire the campest, most ridiculously homosexual director they could find to do a love letter to Hitler. Then they do the casting, and they have to find the worst actor. For the thing, and they find a beatnik hippie called LSD to get him to play Hitler. So they've got a beatnik, peace-loving hippie playing Hitler, directed by the most ridiculous camp guy who wants to turn it into a full-on musical, and it's written by a neo-Nazi. They put all this stuff together, and they are so happy. They've made the worst play imaginable. It's so, so bad. And... They finally put the play on opening night and they know it's going to be terrible so they don't even stay to watch the play. They go into the bar that everyone goes to uh, during intermission and they just sit there and they're like, we, we, have to be, we can't be seen because they'll lynch us at the, end of this, at the end of this play. So the play goes on and it opens with the fantastic number Springtime for Hitler and Germany. Da, 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 da. And Deutschland is happy and gay. And you've got all these women doing like it's swastika uniforms and, and everyone watching it, the play, they're just, their jaws are agog as you just watch the most ridiculous love fest for the Nazis on stage. Then LSD and people start walking out and like, okay, it's all going according to plan. And then... LSD comes on and he starts doing his thing and people start laughing and people think it's a comedy and it's a send-up of Hitler and the the author, the playwright of this play gets really angry because the Hitler... Hitler, the Fuhrer never sends this baby. And he takes over the stage and he starts telling people how wonderful the Fuhrer was. They knock him out on stage, drag him out. People think it's part of the play. They applaud. Curtains cap. The play keeps going on. But they don't know this. Leo and Max don't know this. They're in the bar. And so intermission comes in and they hunker down and they hide. And they're like, oh, I hope we're going to hear the reviews. Everyone's going to hate it so much. They come in and people go and they start talking about how much they love the play they're watching. And they go, it can't be our play. It must be another play across the road. It can't be our play. They can't be loving it. And then someone goes, who would have thought I'd have loved a play called Springtime for Hitler? And they all rush back and they go, what's going on with the play? They run back to the theatre and they watch the play and the play, everyone is laughing and loving it. And they just, they start fainting because they realise they can't. It's become the biggest hit on Broadway. <laughs> Springtime for Hitler has become the most popular. They can't pay the money back. So what do they do? They tell the writer, we need to solve this. So the writer, the German crazy writer played by Kenneth Mars, they go down into the theatre 
And they decide to blow up the theatre. And they set a bomb to blow up the theatre and do everything, but they do it wrong. It explodes. They get in trouble. Cut to. They're in prison. They get arrested. They get thrown in jail. And then in jail, they do the exact same scheme again with the prisoners. <laughs> Credits, right? Uh, it's just brilliant. Okay. That's just the plot. It's like 90 minutes. And the reason it's the perfect comedy is it, that's just funny. It's just funny. That is just... A, the scenes, the, the the jokes. I didn't do any gag lines. There's no. I didn't do dialogue. I didn't do slapstick falls. There's nothing there. It's just what happens is inherently funny. That <laughs> that they they decide that we can make more money with a flop than we can with a hit. We need to make the worst possible play. They do. <laughs> there is that great line. What did we do right? <laughs> right. <laughs> They do everything wrong, and yet it becomes the big, such a big success that they try to blow up the theatre. That doesn't work, and they get thrown in prison for it. And it's hilarious, right? And it's just, it's just a brilliant story. So point one is the story is inherently funny. Yes, and which it, you would know if if you saw the story written down beat by beat. Yeah, it you, would make you'd you start laugh. laughing at yeah. just the synopsis of it, and. Um, and the, and what's great about it as well is it's not just that the story is funny. Stories, you know, they progress, right? So if you have a drama or a tragedy, they get more dramatic, they get more tragic, and they get more exciting, they get more intriguing as they go through. This gets funnier. It does. It's not just joke, 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 ha, 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 and the jokes are set up and paid off nicely. The jokes at the beginning aren't as funny as the jokes at the end. They save, they bide their time slowly, beat by beat, building the story up until they get to the climax, and the climax is the funniest climax. It's like, I can't think of a film where you laugh that hard at the climax. Like, seriously. Hmm. Where the climax is just that funny. But the if you... I mean, if you had, like, a decibel reading thing for the film, and you were to play it, the loudest laughs would be at the end of the film. There's no question. And that's because they build. So the first joke, the first scene, that's funny. The next scene is built on that scene, and it's funnier. Then the next scene is funnier, and so on. Then it drops down a little bit, then builds up a bit, but down a bit, and the intensity goes up and down. But it keeps building up and up and up until you finally get to the big climax where the springtime for Hitler happens, okay? And you watch this thing, and you are crying with laughter because of what they're doing. And then they love it, and you laugh even more. And then it's done. And then the film's over. You can you tell, w- by the way, that the, the, the jokes build as you go along. In your telling, in your four-minute telling of the story, mm. um, the intensity of your telling of the story increased and built just, as the jokes got funny. It just happens, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, it's just because it's just brilliant. Um, and so that's, that's, uh, that's just this great approach that, um, that Mel Brooks had to that story. And it's something he applied to Young Frankenstein. When Gillian Wilder wrote Young Frankenstein... Mel Brooks said, well, I'm going to take a sledgehammer to your work. And what that meant is every little bit he smashed to pieces to see what would remain standing to keep it as funny as it was. So anything in there that he could break down went. So everything, so it was as tight as it could possibly be. How would he break it down? He'd just just attack it. He'd be like, that's not funny. No, not this. Tear this down. Tear that out. Just take that scene out. See what it's like without that scene. Why do we need this character? Why do we do that? Constantly. Every joke, every element, until all you're left with is the best bits. And uh, and Gene Wilder was very happy with that because you ended up making Young Frankenstein, which is excellent. 
Is the sledgehammer approach the same as um, the that old uh, adage of killing your babies? I guess so. Yeah, oh, it's just how Gene Wilder described it, as far sure. as I remember. In an I interview. think I prefer the sledgehammer. It's nice. Um, it works at least better for comedy. Yeah, and he, and it makes sense because it's just like the whole point was to make it as funny as possible. Because Gene Wilder said this; he he always said this. It was if what you're doing is truly funny, then you don't have to act funny. And you were saying about how he likes being, how you loved how his deadpan. Yeah, was. yeah. It's because he didn't have to, he didn't play it as a gag. He played it straight because he knew what was so fu- he knew what was doing was so funny. He didn't have to play it funny. Mm. He, if you underplayed it, it became it was just hilarious. If you overplayed it, it wouldn't be as funny. And he did that with Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor would improvise and ad lib and say things, and he knew he can't keep up with Richard Pryor. Like there's no way he's not that funny. But people said you're so funny with Richard Pryor. He goes, I'm not funny. What I do is I let him do what I want, and then I just react in character, deadpan, serious. I don't make any jokes at all, but he's making everything so funny. I don't have to do anything, and I appear funny. Yeah. But he always said, like, I'm not, I'm not funny. <laughs> what you then have is the, the, um, yeah. uh, the incongruity between those two acting together, yeah. and that in itself, his deadpan reaction to Richard yeah. Pryor is hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. Um, and so that was, that was, that was the, the way that they did that. And um, I loved Hear No Evil. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Spacey's in there as the villain. Yes, yes crazy is that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He was funny. I just love it. I'm black. Does Dad know? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I like. You know, he, you, Richard Pryor is amazing as a blind person. Yes. If you watch like the commentaries on that and the interviews, that everyone is just astounded at like how easily he's able to just make it look like he's not looking at anything. Yeah, just go blind, and they go. He's the focus he had with that is incredible. It's similar to what Bob Hoskins had to do with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You have to focus on something that isn't actually there. Oh yeah, I see. And so there's like there's infamously in Roger Rabbit there's a bit where Roger a rabbit uh, goes up against a wall and he's hunkered down, and then he suddenly stretches up and then goes back down again. And the reason is for a split second, Bob Hoskins lost focus with his eyes, <laughs> so they animated Roger Rabbit to move with his eyes. But otherwise, Bob Hoskins... That's so, superb. Yeah, it's noticeable because it's the one time where Bob Hoskins lost focus. Yeah. Every other time, he had it perfectly. Every single time. And they were just amazed at how he was able to do it. Richard Pryor was able to do it with being blind. I would love to do a podcast in the future on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. It's sure. a terrific movie. It is really good, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, yeah, it's Christopher Lloyd and everything. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, one of my favourite stories is that the guy who did the voice for Roger Rabbit showed up on set in a giant Roger Rabbit costume <laughs> and people thought that was actually in the film. And so the word around the studios was, have you seen what the rabbit looks like? It's terrible. <laughs> like The guy's just wearing rabbit ears and overalls. Like, he's not... <laughs> they just thought, it's going to be terrible, this movie. It like, looks so bad. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, the producers. Um, it's It's funny... Uh, the story is inherently funny and it builds its jokes. It's not just it sets up a joke and then pays it off later. It doesn't just call back jokes. It's the jokes themselves are funnier as it goes through. It doesn't just go, let's make this scene as funny as possible, just in the same way you wouldn't go, let's make this scene as exciting as possible or as tragic as possible. It's it like, no, builds. we build up that emotion. What and would then... be, within the producers then, what would be a good example of that? 
What do you mean? Well, the what? building, the building of the jokes, because you, you mentioned callback, which is a specific type of yeah. When you, you set something up ages in advance, yeah, and then, then you come you back got, and you yeah. go, oh, what a great joke, yeah, yeah. Um, but but building, you mean just the quality okay. of the joke is bigger. Okay, or? so at the beginning of the film, the 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 first sort of jokes you see are Max carousing old ladies. Yeah. Then the next scene is him with Leo, and uh, he starts terrorizing Leo Bloom, who's neurotic, and Leo's holding onto his blanket, and he's going, I'm hysterical! I'm hysterical! What do I do? What do I do? I'm hysterical! And he throws water in his face and goes, I'm wet! And I'm still hysterical! <laughs> and he starts hitting us. I know, no, you're just making it worse. Just give me space to say So that, that's a lot funnier than what you just saw. And that's really funny. And then it takes a little backseat as he builds him up into going, you know, you can make more money with the flop. And then that. And then it builds to Kenneth Mars shows up. Kenneth Mars is insane. And you start cracking up because of how insane Kenneth Mars is, because he's more insane than Leo Bloom is. And then, and so you get through the cast of crazy characters. And then, so now all these things, they're building one up after the other. You're seeing, okay, h- how ridiculous those two characters are together, right? You laugh at Max, then you laugh at Leo and the combination of the two of them. Then you laugh at the writer of the play. Then you laugh at the director and actors of the play. You see the audition. Then you laugh at the opening night of the play. And then you laugh at the big turn that it's a success, so it's just each turning point is just funnier than the one before. Does that make it clearer? It does. Yeah, I'm just trying to sort of nail it down, I guess, in a uh, in in a, a neat little um, kind of definition or, or example. But at least if we're taking humour from the the juxtaposition or the incongruity between mm. two things um, or expectation and result, yes. that that gap gets bigger as well, the, well, that, yeah that's the same thing so in, in other stories right this, the turns the turns get bigger the in turns the get more dynamic and bigger and the gaps have more insight into them and, and therefore that's yeah, what so the rush the of insight that you get when uh, the play becomes a success that's the, you that's just go, the maximum yeah, yeah right? you go all the way back through the film and go of course it's a huge success yeah. they've made the, one of the funniest comedies I've ever seen because I've been laughing at it for the last hour <laughs> right I've been laughing at what they've been putting on for now of yeah. course their audience thinks it's funny it is funny like Springtime for Hitler is one of the funniest things I've ever seen I was laughing at it and now when they're laughing I was like of course they laugh at it you idiots you've made this brilliant thing how did you not notice that you've made such a good play, right? Um, so you have this rush of insight, but at the beginning you don't have these little rushes of insight. You don't have these huge barrel of laughs. You don't in action, for example, or crime or whatever. You don't start immediately start off with the most crazy murder. You don't start off with the most outrageous spectacle. Yeah. And similarly, you don't start off with the most outrageous gag. If you start that high, you have nowhere to go because as soon as you raise the threshold the intensity, the emotional threshold of the story, the audience's focus, it becomes, their boredom threshold just goes up with it. Yeah. Because they're focused on it. It's like, if you go, okay, we're setting this at nine, the audience goes, okay, so nine is your st- your steady state. Like, <laughs> I'll let you drop down to eight. That's about the extent of it. Well, then you've only got to go to 10. You can't build. Whereas if you say, if you start at five, say, you can build up, go back down, build up, go back down, and slowly build it up. But the audience gets... The more intense you get, the more or the audience will be bored if you don't meet that intensity. So if you start that high, the audience just gets bored really, really quickly. Do you think that's the the crux of why Producers is um, qualitatively better as a comedy than 
you know, say other comedies. Yeah, which we'll come I, to I, later. I, but. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's because it's just. It's so well structured and so well done. So it, it is a structure. The, the, a structure the, the idea of it's brilliant. The central jokes of it are brilliant. Everything about it is brilliant. It's super tight. It's super fun. It's everything about it just works absolutely perfectly, and and you can tell because it, you just have to say what happens in the story. It's inherently funny, and when you watch it and you have all that momentum over the course of 90 minutes you will just cry with laughter and not only that like when you laugh when you see if you just watch a random scene of the producers if you haven't seen the film that that scene won't work it just won't work if you just play springtime for hitler for someone who's never seen the producers they won't laugh no they'll go what they won't get it which tells you how important it is because the whole point is the scenes build on each other and play out on each other. You can't just take one scene and play it. It's not just a series of sketches. It's an actual comedy story. So every scene, the the hilarity from those scenes is because of the scenes that precede it and you know what scenes are coming after it. So when you play one random scene, you've seen the whole film, you're laughing because of what came before, so you're getting the joke now, but you're also now laughing with dramatic irony because you know where it's going. Yeah. Okay? So the joke is very rich. When you watch it for the first time, because it's moving along, the narrative drive is carrying you through the story, you're laughing with this sense of momentum, and the laughter is building inside of you, and they just give you time to ta- catch a breath. I really like the idea, actually, that... Um, uh, I mean, clearly, you it's good to build jokes on what's happened previously, yeah. but... The idea of using that dramatic irony of, yeah. of letting audiences know what's to come. And the reason with the producer it works is you know this show has to be put on and it is going to be horrendous. Yes. And as each element of the play is added, the actor, the director, you, you, you think, oh my just, God. It's, 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 it's what a comedy should be, a funny story. Yeah. All of these elements are, if I were saying this about crime, action, uh, redemption stories, whatever, no one would bat an eyelid. Everyone be of course, of course, that's how you do it. That's the, of course, that's how stories work. But with yeah. comedy, people act like that's not the case. Like, no, when you do it with comedy, you get the best comedies, because th- 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 whenever someone like with you and Jason, when you guys are giving me your comedies, and I'm always this is the standard I'm holding you guys to. And mm-hmm. I realized after all, I probably hadn't let you in effectively on <laughs> how high a standard I was holding you. So in to. your head, like, you're thinking you're not as funny as yeah. But Gene I, Wilder. I was aware that uh, like I remember you, you gave me uh, one of your more recent synopses for uh, the band story, and oh, I, it actually wasn't recent. That was a long time ago. It's now. true, actually. Yeah. And the the kidnapping one, right? Yeah. And I and the end was really it made me laugh, and like it got me a proper laugh out loud as I'm watch as I was reading it. I was reading it by myself, and I laughed out loud at the ending. Yeah. When you gave that turn, and. I told you guys like that's and I, and I realized like because I said okay so the rest of this isn't working there's this problem this problem this problem and then I went you do you guys realize you got me to laugh in one page without dialogue like that's really hard to do ninety percent of comedies that wouldn't happen it just wouldn't happen you might laugh when you watch it because the yeah. actors are funny but it's not actually funny so that one turn is really funny. And therefore, you have to just go back up and make sure the setup yeah. to get the biggest possible laugh out of it. But that's what you're looking for in a comedy. That's what you want. You want that moment where you go, and then this happens, and they go, ah, ha, 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 and they start laughing. If yeah. you can get that in one page, like, uh, well, how long was it to take me to do the producer? Four minutes? It was about four minutes. Yeah. So, guess what happens when you do it for 90 minutes? 
right? It's just even funnier because you yeah, have the adrenaline yeah. to build up. So long as you can just keep that quality going and you know what you're doing. So that's the to me that's the standard to write comedies too. And like, yeah, okay, you never you're not going to write the producers anytime soon. No one is, right? Mel Brooks couldn't write the producers a second time. Um, but just because you might not reach that quality doesn't mean you don't try and you don't obey the basic principles, which is, yeah, your jokes should be jokes. And when you make a list of, like, the best comedies on, on say, like, in film, like, you know, Fish Called Wonder and Ruthless People or... Um, Ruthless People. Okay, so Ruthless People, that's another one where you just tell the story and people start laughing. I don't even have to tell the whole story to get you laughing. Right? So, do you want to tell Act 1? Yeah, okay. Danny DeVito, <laughs> who's hard to think about now without thinking of Philly. Yeah. Uh, Danny DeVito is sitting at a restaurant telling someone who he can't see. He's telling someone about how much he hates his wife. And what he's doing is he's having lunch in a restaurant with his mistress, explaining to her not only how much he hates his wife, but how he plans to kill her when he gets home. He's going to go home. He's going to chloroform his wife, who's played by Bette Midler. He's going to chloroform his wife put her in a car and drive the car off a cliff and have her die. And then he's going to be with the mistress and that's his plan, right? That's what Danny DeVito is going to do. So Danny DeVito goes home and he's got the chloroform and he's really excited and he's going to kill his wife. And he calls out for a honey. Calls out. She's not, doesn't answer. Looks around the house. She's not there. So he sulks because he can't kill his wife. He sits down. Then the phone rings. He picks up the phone. And on the phone is a voice muffled and it goes, we have your wife. If you pay us $5,000, you'll get her back. If you don't, we will kill her. If you tell the police. And as they're making their demands, his eyes light up. He starts smiling. They go, if you call the police, we will kill her. Cut to the police are all at his house. The media is there. <laughs> He's like, oh, someone was kidnapped my wife. That is the exciting incident of this film. And then it builds from there because it turns out that the kidnappers who kidnapped him are the most nice people in the world. They are vegetarians. They won't hurt the wife. The wife, she lost, she's desperate to lose weight and she starts losing weight because of like they're not, she's exercising every day in, in their house because she can't do anything else. She starts exercising. They're feeding her properly because they're vegetarian. They feed her really nicely, but because they're vegetarian, she's having a lot less calories. She loses so much weight and then decides to help them get their money from her husband who she now hates because she discovers that the husband, and it's just, this is brilliant. This is just such a great setup, and it pays off brilliantly. There's a great fast, but yeah, ruthless people. Um, and then you've got sitcoms like Frasier uh, and um, Curb Your Enthusiasm. For That's example. a good example for this um, uh, for this idea of things being funny on the page, isn't it? Curb. Yeah, yeah, because Larry David, um, the way he writes Curb Your Enthusiasm is he has a twelve page script that is every scene listed. So he'll say. Uh, Larry David wants to use the carpool lane to get to the game, uh, but he hasn't got anyone to take with him, so he hires a prostitute to get in the car with him. And as they're driving to the game, he starts haggling with her about how much money he should be paying her based on how much money she can earn per hour. And so they start talking about how many blowjobs she can do in an hour and how much she gets paid for it. And he starts getting surprised at how much money she's earning. And say, like, with that much money, why are you a prostitute? And they go back and forth. And he doesn't write any of the dialogue. He just says what they're talking about and all this stuff. Then he auditions actors, finds a good actor that there's chemistry with. Then they sit down and they improvise the dialogue. They don't, as Gene Wilder would say, they don't have to act funny because what they're doing is funny. Hmm. So the whole, and that's how 
um, coping with enthusiasm is done. It's not improvised. It's meticulously scripted, um, uh, structured. It's just that the dialogue is so unimportant to comedy. Gag lines is so unimportant to comedy. He doesn't even bother with them. He doesn't need them. He just knows if I put Larry David in this situation and he's this kind of character with this character who's this kind of character and they are in this situation, it will be funny. And he's right. So I have a question then. Um, yes. So I haven't watched uh, Curb. It's just one of those shows that I've, I've never oh, gotten right. around to, um, but he's on my to-do list. Mm. Um, so I have them all on DVD. Fantastic. Um, then we'll arrange this off mic. Oh yeah. Oh man, some some of COVID is it's just infuriating. Um, it's so embarrassing. So with with uh say producers, when you've got a ninety minute comedy um and you are doing this once, you sledgehammer it, you you perfect that. Yes. With Kerb, he's doing that time after time after time, yes. episode after episode yes. for however many seasons, eight. what like eight now? Eight. Ten episodes. Are there times when he gets it wrong? No. Every episode works. Every episode is funny. And there's two kinds of Kerb your enthusiasm episodes. There's two. Okay. This is important to understanding how to enjoy Curb. <laughs> there are some episodes where Larry David is right, and there are other episodes where he's completely wrong. <laughs> and uh, when you, and so sometimes he's in the right, and you go, everyone in LA is such an ass, I hate them. And then there's other times where he's completely wrong. You go, Larry, just apologize just once. Just, why would you do that? Larry? Like, there's one scene, there's one scene where his wife tells him that a friend of hers who's brother is in the CIA says there might be a terrorist attack in LA on the weekend and they should get out of the city and so the wife says to Larry we should get out of the city and and uh, Larry's like okay well we should definitely leave the city and then she goes oh but I've got this engagement this really important party on Saturday so we can't go and he's like how about if I just go <laughs> and she's like really he goes, I just don't see the reason for us both to be <laughs> And uh, as they have an argument, there's uh, there, there was one episode where, like the producers, they built the jokes over the course of the thing. They set up jokes, had callbacks, yeah. all that stuff, and it was so funny. I'm not this. I'm not making this up. It was so funny when they did the final gag at the end of the episode. I literally leapt out of my chair onto the floor and and was like banging my hand, laughing. It's just so funny, crying with tears. It was just such a great payoff for like 20 minutes of, of Curb sometimes he's the most infuriating man but it's so funny um, and it's it's just that great thing like he just doesn't need gag lines yeah it's just great um, and so uh, Spaced was a British show which is excellent it's the reason Edgar Wright and Nick Frost and Simon Pegg they got Shaun of the Dead off of it which turned, gave them these careers and Spaced they the, the jokes in Space don't come from gag lines they come from contextualising references to pop culture that directly juxtapose the mundane elements of their lives so they'll have a platoon reference in a fight where they're mock gunning each other they've got mock yeah. guns they have the platoon music playing in it like a vietnam thing and because they're using other stories there's an inherent progression to their things they're progressing their stories as they build up and they get the big we have for Tim having played Resident Evil so much and not having slept that at the end of and the he's episode, also had lots of twiglets at the, <laughs> yeah, right at the end of the episode at the big art show yes. he starts hallucinating pudding. Yeah. pudding yeah he hallucinates and then punches out the big artist but, yeah yeah. so they, they have these build ups to it and they the one flew of the cuckoo nest episode and all that they have all these constant references and they use them to build up they're all writers Daisy <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's it's uh, the, those episodes are thirty minutes, and they just build, build, build. Faulty Towers is another one yeah. where they build, 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 build. Big comedy thing at the end. And John Cleese lamented the problem with making a Faulty Towers movie was you couldn't just build, 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 build for ninety minutes. You had to have lulls to build back up, which is true. And the producers does that beautifully. So I, I, he could have done it for Faulty Towers, but um, if you if you actually heard his plot for the Faulty Towers movie, no. It's re- it's it, this um, it's like what we're talking about. It's just, I'll tell you the plot. It's just funny. Basil Fawlty gets invited by Manuel to go to Spain to visit Manuel's family, so he goes to Heathrow, but the flight is delayed. So he's trapped in Heathrow for hours with Manuel, just hours upon hours. He can't take it anymore. Finally, finally, they get on the plane. Once they're on the plane, the plane takes off. They're flying across towards Spain, and then the plane gets taken over by a hijacker. The hijacker pulls the gun. It's like, we're going somewhere else. Like, we're, this is where we're going to go. Basil is so enraged. He's been waiting so long to get on the plane. So long to get to Spain. He overcomes the hijacker. Takes the gun from the hijacker. Takes out the hijacker. Everyone applauds. Basil's a hero. The pilot then goes, well done. We have to go back to Heathrow now. Because, of course, the hijackers have to turn around. And Basil pulls the gun out. Points at the pilot. goes, no. Take us to Spain. <laughs> <laughs> he forces the plane into Spain. They land. They arrest Basil. He spends the whole time in the in the prison. <laughs> and then he, gets, <laughs> and then he gets deported back to England, and that was that's the plan. That's the plot of the film. Like, that's great, but um, he didn't want to do it. Um, it's great, isn't it? I like. Well, yes. Okay, I like so, it. Um, but yeah. So that's um. That's a, that's just like a funny story, and so. But if you look at comedies today, yeah. So I, yeah, I wanted to get onto. So I, I we you like the new Ghostbusters a great deal. I really like mm. Spy. I love Melissa McCarthy. If you look at TV shows like Thirty Rock and New Girl, um, and what do you notice? Like they 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 don't have this. They don't have this progression. They just have joke, joke, joke. This joke is funny. This joke is funny. This joke is funny. This joke is funny. Let's loosely segue between them. Have a bit of an ending. The the spy. I loved spy. I thought spy was really funny. Spy is hilarious. Jason Staten is amazing in it. Melissa McCarthy is so funny in it. Peter Serenikovich is funny. Uh, Rose uh, Rose Byrne is funny. Everyone in it is hilarious. But if I take the any joke from you can you know when you can go on YouTube and watch a clip. Yeah. It's just funny. But there's no, there's no. My favorite scene in in Spy, my two favorite scenes. One is the Jason Statham scene where he's explaining to her how hard he is by like, going, you know, I surgically reattached this arm with this arm. I don't think that's medically possible. You know that stuff. And my other one is when she's, I don't want to swear so much because she swears so much in this film. But when she's just like, you, want, the, the Swedish guy. Yeah. And yeah, she's yeah. like, you want me to have Cagney and Lacey explain it to you? Cagney's gonna go down your throat. Lacey's gonna go up your ass. And they're gonna meet in the middle. I'm gonna pump your heart like an accordion. I'm gonna pump that till it pops. Right, and it's like it's like, what are you gonna do? You're gonna cry? I'm not crying. Yeah, you're crying now. It's hot. <laughs> it's really funny, but then, huh? There's no story around that. Joke. Yeah, that's funny. It's as, of as funny as it is, and it's hilarious. It's there's no difference between it being in the film and just being a sketch that Melissa McCarthy recorded. And um, and this was the thing you mentioned, which I thought was really insightful, which yeah. is why this has had happened. Yeah, we were discussing why we think there's been a shift towards this kind of TV show and this kind of movie where... In fact, this... before you give your insight, yeah. talk about 30 Rock, right? Like 30 yeah, Rock is 30 a perfect Rock, yeah. 30 example, is a great right? example. It's just joke. It's just 
punch, 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 punch. There's really no progression to any of the jokes. It's no. just a machine gun, right? But it, and New Girl is another one I haven't seen, but you you talk about uh, that. New Girl. Yeah, now New Girl isn't quite the same because um, they they work very hard uh, on putting a heart in the story and having like real right. kind of character emotion. Yes. Um, so you're never going to get those kind of uh, I don't think the same kind of gut belly laughs. Yes. Um, but what I do know about New Girl is that they have two writers' rooms. They yes. have a story writers' mm. room and they have a gag story room. Yes. Um, a writers' room, sorry. So when they go out to film scenes, they will they will film over and over. Um, and in the same way that in some of the movies they would like um, spy, um, they would improvise gags over the top. This other one, they would try different gags uh, yes. that have been provided by the writers' room. So it's yes. just kind of a scripted gag. Yes, real as opposed to an improvised gag reel, right? And then exactly. they just pick which one works works best. Right. Um, but it's the same effect. You yeah, know, it's not it's not a scripted story beat. It's just a, right. a, a you know wordplay over the top, which exactly. would get a laugh. And so as as I was saying, like if you take Thirty Rock, New Girl on TV now, and compare it to Frasier and Curb Your Enthusiasm, if you take Spy and Ghostbusters and look at Ruthless People and the producers, you can see there's a definite shift in the nature of how these comedies are done. One is progressive storytelling that's funny. The other is just a series of contextualized jokes. And your reason why you think this shift has happened is? Uh, I called it sketch culture. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, so um, most of these actors are uh, SNL. Yeah, Saturday Night Live guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's their forte. They are hilarious. Yep. Delivering those gags because yes. sketches are yes gag based as opposed yeah. to progression based because yeah. you've only got two to five or one to five minutes. That's right. Um, yeah. In the case of uh, SNL, anyway, up to like five minutes for a yeah for a sketch. Um, and so they've got these actors, and what do they do best? They they deliver gags. Yes. They improvise. Yeah. So they let them do what they're best at. Yes. And so what you're left with, you were saying that. Um, the the um, editor of the Paul Feig movies. Oh, Paul Feig. Yeah, uh, my friend Will. Uh, he sent me a link, um, which was to an article about the editor behind all the Paul Feig movies, and editor. He's basically the editor for all the big comedies now, and they fight over which one of them gets him. They have, they book him early. Judd Apatow is the other one. Like Judd Apatow and Paul Feig fight over who gets to use him for their movie next. <laughs> uh, and what they do is they film. They'll sit there with the camera rolling. And the directors will just interject things, and then the actors will respond to them. They literally just improvise in front of the camera, and then they just ship all that footage to the editor, and he trawls through it, finds the best bits from different takes, and compiles them together to make one good take. And I was reading it, and I told Will I got halfway through before I just I couldn't take any more, because <laughs> it was, for me, the definition of hell. Like, just trawling through other people who cannot be bothered to actually do the work in advance and expect me to finish the work. What was worse is the editor loves it. He thinks it's great. Paul Feig and Judd Apatow, they think it's great. They think this is the they think this is the future of comedy. And I'm just sitting there going like, you are wasting so much time, so much time and so much effort to do this. Like the hit the hit ratio for these jokes is what, one in twenty? So you're sitting there you're recording 19 scenes you don't need to film. You're sitting there making the editor watch these 19 scenes he doesn't need to see just so that you can hopefully cobble together something when, guess what, you could have done that beforehand in a room with a corkboard. That's what that's what writing is. And you realise, oh, they don't have writers. They have actors and directors 
who improvise. They have a basic, basic semblance of a story, and then they improvise sketches. And that's what's, that's what's gone wrong. There's no writing. And it's really... I mean, sometimes that's not the case. Bridesmaid is, has a really great story to it. Uh, and I the think... stories aren't terrible. It's just that that's, what, that's, that's, what's, that's what's changed. And that's why we're not getting things like the producers, which are just... Fun. We don't, even the new Ghostbusters, right? The old Ghostbusters has progressive... It's progressive. The new one yeah. isn't. Hmm. Um, and that was that was Saturday Night Live as well, wasn't it? Ghostbusters. That, they were Saturday Night Live, but they they understood. So the guys who do South Park, who are also we talked about how brilliant they are with their craftsmanship. They realised when they went to do the film, they sat down and went, "You know what we should do? We should actually learn how to write." Because they realised when you're doing a sketch or you're doing a twenty minute episode, you own, I mentioned John Cleese understood this. You only have to get the last build, 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 big laugh at the end. You're done. You only have 20 minutes. You only have a couple of minutes. Done. When you're trying to then make it a full-length story, you can't just keep raising it. You can't just keep throwing jokes at people. Yeah. 30 Rock. I watch one episode. I laugh a lot. I watch two episodes. I laugh not n- nearly as much. I watch three episodes. I want to throw the DVDs in the bin. I get so angry. Why? Because it's just unrelenting. Joke, 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 joke. Brooklyn Nine Nine. I like Brooklyn Nine Nine, but I can't watch more than two episodes at a time. Uh, here's where we would differ. I love it. It's very funny. Brooklyn Nine Nine is hilarious. I, I, I'm, I, I've watched what two seasons, and I loved them both. I really love three's them. even. Three's better. I haven't seen three, but my, but it's the same thing with Thirty Rock. I can watch one, two episodes at most, back to back, and then I'm done. Whereas the Best seasons of The Simpsons. We were talking about The Simpsons. Their story. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. I can watch a box set of The Simpsons <laughs> that I've seen two hundred times and not want to turn it off and just go. Oh, you know, what? I'm going to watch that season again. I can watch Faulty Towers back to back, all the episodes. A Curb Your Enthusiasm. Eight seasons of it. There's no. There's no. Why? Because there's this build. It. It guy. It. There's a. It's. It's properly done. Whereas these ones, as you say, they're sketch culture. I think as I, sketches, I want to take issue with the word "properly done" okay. because yes. So the, I mean, you're probably. I agree with you. Yeah. I, was, <laughs> when I say "properly done," what I mean is, is we were talking about the Jason Staten sketch and the Cagney and Lacey sketch. Yeah. As sketches, they are brilliant. Yeah. As as scenes in a full length story, they are not good. That's my point. So the thing so, about comedy, the. You know it works when people laugh. Yes. Okay. Um, and I wanted to come to this point at some point in yes. the podcast, but um, uh, now's as good a time as any. Um, whilst we're moderately disagreeing. Mm. Um, yeah. W- the point of comedy is to make people laugh. So when it works, people yes. are laughing. Yes. And that's... Um, I don't know if confusion is the right word. When you have a synopsis written down, you can make people laugh with that. Great. Yes. If you can make people laugh with gags, great. You're still getting people to laugh. I guess the point ultimately we're making about producers why it's so good yes. is that is um, uh, better. Is better the right word? I don't know. But if you can get it's the there we go perfect. It's like the, what you were saying earlier about it being just the perfect comedy. If you can get people off with the story, yeah, then I guess you can make it even funnier on top of that with the dialogue. Here's here's how I would phrase it: it the producers is a comedy. Spy, Ghostbusters, Thirty Rock, they're a series of jokes. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Right? A series of jokes, a sketch show, there's nothing wrong with them. Monty Python's a sketch show. Saturday Night Live's a sketch there's no- Sketches are great. Yeah, they're just a different, ki- a different... Different kind of thing. Yeah. The problem is when you go, I'm going to make a comedy out of sketches. They're 
they're different. You can't just keep repeating sketches for two hours. And I tell you what, they don't have as films. They don't have the longevity. They don't have the longevity. They don't last up. So a, things like repeated viewings. Oh, uh, so Hangover. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Hangover for me didn't really work as one movie, yeah. and that gets a two and a three. Yeah. Like, and by the the second one, people didn't like, but yeah. people still saw it. The third one, people didn't even bother seeing. And I thought the first one was really, really disappointing because I was liking it until they revealed where he was and I was just, he's on the roof. And I'm like, that's not satisfying. It's not funny. Yeah. It's not intriguing. There's no insight. It's just, you didn't know how to end your story. And your whole, and then you go, well, actually, there was never any story. That's kind of a problem. Um, and the the sort of, the shtick of comedy is great. Um, I, I love Melissa McCarthy. She's just so funny. Wonderful. But then you I think ju- the best at the moment? Yeah. Yeah, probably. I think she's the finest comedy yeah. actor we've got at the moment. But what annoys me is I'm watching these films and I'm just sitting there going, imagine how funny she would be. Imagine how much funnier Deadpool would be. Imagine how much funnier Spy and Ghostbusters would be if they sat down and had an actual story. It's like the same thing. We, it's just... Why, why, I know it's hard, but by not having it at all, you're you're kind of making... You're just drastically reducing the effectiveness of it. You could, you could. There's no reason for these things to. And it's not just like, oh, it's a bygone era, you know, the the structured comedies. This is what they're trying to do. They just aren't doing it. They're they're kind of lazy in a way. They know they can improvise and get the gags, and they know they can. People will enjoy it. And there's a part of me that's just, if you, e- even if you set, it's not just a matter of setting up the jokes and having a nice storyline because they do that. Yeah. It's that the jokes themselves are progressed. So you don't just go to the funniest, most hilarious thing you can possibly do in the first scene. Because then you can't go anywhere else. When you, when Melissa McCarthy... When, when I re- re- read that article and you read how they make these films, they keep improvising the scene and they get to a darker and funnier and more risque, taboo place. So that you can say, like, okay, they, they go straight to the end of the line. But if you go to the end of the line in the first scene, you haven't held anything back for later. You're not doing a sketch where you're trying to get all the all the jokes, all the marrow out as quickly as you can in three minutes. You've got time. The audience expects you to take advantage of that time. So you've got, um, like in, in, in The Heat, which I really liked. Oh, The Heat's great. Yeah. yeah. So there's this line. The beginning of the film where she she's she just harasses this drug dealer and she goes and he goes like oh what are you gonna do you gonna just pick on a black guy and she goes don't play that race bullshit with me that nine out of ten guys I have sex with are black guys <laughs> like that and just like that's so good that's so brilliant it's the first scene of the film you can't get any funnier than that so when they sh- when they at the end of the film when they shoot the dick off the bad guy it's not that funny it's not that extreme because you've seen far far worse. Yeah. Before then, so it's uh, it's good. It's, it's fine, funny, but you've kind of you've blown. Yeah, you did it. Uh, twenty two Jump Street's a bit better. Uh, not uh, twenty one and twenty two Jump Street. They work. Really they're, they're good. They're really good. Yeah. I thought. But do you see what I mean? So because the 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 laughs are sort of static at a certain level. Actually, twenty one Jump Street is a good example. I, I was just running over a couple of beats in my head, yeah. and the beats are funny. Yeah, you know. They yeah, the beats set, turn. They get they do progress. Yeah. Their identities are mixed yeah. up, so you, it's you good. Got, yeah, yeah, it's good. And um, and uh, Dumb and Dumber, right? We love that film, as we yeah. pointed out. Dumb and Dumber, that a lot of that's improvised. So yeah. it's not that improvisation is evil and you shouldn't do it. It's relying on improvisation and not paying attention that 
you know what? This scene, not realizing this is a possibility, which is this scene is too funny. Right? Mind blown. That's the point. They don't recognize this scene is too funny. If we make the audience laugh too hard at this point, we kill our ending. Do you think part of that comes from uh, fear of losing the audience? I, I would think part of it comes from fear of the English, but I think you've honestly hit the nail on your head. These are people who their whole career is built on sketch comedy and they've migrated to film and all they are doing is a series of loosely connected sketches with the same character and they haven't realised you that's not what full length is about. And they haven't realised this is why their films are funny the first time, not that funny the second time and they don't age well. Whereas other films like Ruthless People, A Fish Called Wonder, The Producers, I tell you the story. I just tell you the bare bones of what happens and it's inherently funny. And that's why they last as classics. That's why they keep coming back. Mm. And I'm trying to think uh, of, uh, of the most brilliant comedy recently. What's the most brilliant comedy in recent years? Funniest That thing we think w- would last. That we think will last? Yeah. Oh, God knows. Um... I mean, Cobra Enthusiasm and Philly are TV shows. TV shows, yeah, for South sure. Park is a TV yeah, show. Yeah, I'm yeah, thinking yeah. in terms of film. In terms of film... Can you think uh, of one? Funniest thing I've seen. I really enjoyed Trainwreck. But I, I didn't see Trainwreck. No, but I wonder... Um, because it's a, uh, it's Amy Schumer I'm, um, who's done sketches. I won- I don't know whether it's come from the I, same I, place. I, I, well, I'm a bit, we're a bit silly. I know. I can think of two. Go on. Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. Oh, you're going back as far. I was only thinking the last couple of years. No, I'm thinking like in the last 10 years. Oh, in the last 10 years? Yeah, okay. 10 years is fine, right? That's given them enough time to age. You can see if they're still really funny. Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz are still brilliant. Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, Edgar Wright is so meticulous in his directing. They are like ruthless people, a fish called Wonder, the producers. They are just funny, inherently funny, and will be inherently funny. Is that to be expected? Because they come from, we mentioned space, same people. It's yeah. come from that same... Yeah background again if we're uh, like fish called wonder uh yeah you know it's come from john cleese and and 40 he towers is done yeah. in the same way these are people that uh, the, the, all of them have the same thing which is they are they treat the story as they treat the film as one holistic entity they set everything up hot fuzz every time someone says the greater good in hot fuzz someone else echoes the statement way before you know that that's the it, before it's a gag right so there's a bit where he checks in and uh, he says the greater good and she goes the greater good straight back like that and you don't pick up on it and all through the film and then at the end they go every time someone says the greater good they go the greater good it's like shut up saying that right <laughs> and it becomes this gag well that you can only do that because they set everything up in advance so they haven't got time to just it, I mean I'm sure Sean of the Dead and Hot Fuzz they did some improvisation but they didn't need to do much and they knew they uh, as John as Jim Wilder always said they don't have to act funny because what they're doing is funny. Yeah. And Edgar Wright has... Pl- t- uh, there's a really, really great video on YouTube uh, by a really great... There's a great series. Uh, a guy called Tony Zhu does this uh, called Every Frame of Painting. And he talks about directing the way we talk about writing. And he does a brilliant one on um, visual comedy, specifically talking about how oh, great Edgar Wright... Yeah, yeah, how great Edgar Wright is. And he just makes these points very clear about how important Edgar Wright is to those films. So, um, but the, the the principle here is that the comedy, the film, is seen as one whole entity, not a series of sketches that are connected by a loose story. And as a result, they are far more satisfying, 
far more satisfying. It's not. It's not. I don't even think it's debatable. It's just, it's just far more satisfying. You will get crazier laughs from Melissa McCarthy being incredibly taboo breaking. But you'll get deeper laughs. Yeah. And the biggest laughs in the producers, Melissa McCarthy doesn't come close to giving you. Not because she can't. She's hilarious. It's because that that environment. The funniest bit in This Is Forty comes from Melissa McCarthy improving, and it's absolutely brilliant. But it's the, it 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 it's not actually in the film. It's in the outtakes at the end because it, you couldn't put that in the film hmm. because it's the bit where she's yelling at the principal in the school. She's only in a couple of scenes in the film. She's yelling at the principal in the school, and like the principal is taking the side of um, Paul Rudd and against Melissa McCarthy. She goes, "This is why everyone hates you, Jill." Everybody hates you. And I'm glad your husband's dead. <laughs> if I were him, I'd have killed myself. He killed himself, didn't he? I'd kill myself, Jill. Like that. And they all start laughing, right? It's obvious up until that point, no one had suggested that this woman was even married. Right? <laughs> but she just to me goes, I'm glad your husband died. And like Paul Rudd just starts crying, but he has to, can't make a sound. No one can make a sound. Because and like she's just rambling for two minutes about how much she hates this woman and swearing. And it's just, this is brilliant. This is such a good gag. But they couldn't even put it in the film. Couldn't even put it in the film. And they had to put it in the outtakes because it's that funny. Like Melissa McCarthy is amazing. And I just think she's like terrific. she's terrific, and like I just keep thinking like Bridesmaids is really good. I just keep thinking if, I, th- I think you'd yeah. really enjoy Trainwreck. Yeah, I want to. There, there was a there's a moment at the end where I couldn't breathe. <laughs> That's always the best. Was yeah. like it's so funny you always can't laugh. Yeah, there's no air in you, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so um, comedy, uh, perfect comedy, producers, 1968, and it's just still this. It's just it's the perfect execution of the of the full length comedic form. Yeah. If you're doing long form, if you're doing series, if you're doing sketches, obviously that's not the case. But if you're doing full length comedy, and Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel are both gone now, but um, they're forever in this film, and they're just great in this film. What? Uh, what should we take away from this writing? This time it's my turn to ask you. <laughs> Because you're the one who came up with the sketch culture thing. I'm going to ask you, what should we take away from our writing? For me, the thing I would do as a writer uh, is uh, write your comedy without dialogue. Mm-hmm. Synopsis. I mean, that's important in a in, in any other kind like of Like Larry David does with Kurt. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I'm not saying you later improvise the dialogue. You can then later layer it with hilarious dialogue. Yeah. Um, but I think if you can get your story beats mm. funny and if you can tell that story mm. like so if you're writing a, a 90 minute movie and you beat it out beat it out and you get it as good as you can like mm. you would do with another story you mm. sit down with a friend you buy them coffee yeah. and you tell them the story if you can get them laughing without any lines of dialogue you know that that's going to work yeah, exactly right? and it's pure because you've got the person laughing it's yeah. not like if you're writing action, you're trying to work out if they're excited yeah. or on the edge of their seat. Or... You never tell someone to improvise a tragedy. Right. Just never do it. Right. There's a, it's, it, there's, certain, there's a certain thing that belies a certain snobbery. It's like people who don't want to write action scenes, but they want to write action. They don't want to write the fight scenes. Yeah. Uh, well, why are you writing this genre at all? <laughs> if, you don't want to, if you don't want to write the jokes, if you just want to improv and wing it, yeah. then that just tells me you're not being serious. Or um, I mean, I, you want to leave room for actors like Melissa McCarthy. Obviously, oh, for sure. But there's a difference between leaving room for somebody and basically going, "Here's a giant open space. Now, please build a house." Right. 
How's that for an analogy? <laughs> um, anyway. But yeah, but I mean, yeah, dialogue punchlines can be replaced and improvised. Yeah, and it's, that's it's the most superficial part of it. Yeah, like we had um, we had a sketch on uh, Radio 4 and they changed one of the punchlines and when I heard it, I thought, oh, okay, that's actually better. It just mm. rolls better. Yeah. But... Um, uh, yeah, uh, and this is why working in a, t- a co- work, uh, writing comedy in a team just yes. works a bit more efficiently because when you're saying, "Oh, why don't we do this or yeah. this?" If the other person laughs, boom, you yeah. know, you, you you've know, got it. You've got something. Yeah, yeah if they you don't laugh. You know, you don't have something. That's it. And um, and then you have yeah, you have your team, and of course, uh, you notice like the Monty Python. You have all these great comedy teams, right? Kristen Wiig and. Um, Paul, uh, Melissa McCarthy and Paul Feig is a team. Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, that's a team. team. Uh, you have, and of course you had Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks and Madeline Kahn, <laughs> Marty Feldman. I mean, Mel Brooks is the only one that's still alive, isn't he? They're all gone. Feldman's gone, Kahn's gone, um, and, and Pryor's gone and Wilder's gone now. And uh, yeah, but at least... Um, uh, I don't know. We have at least we have the body of work, right? Yes, we do, and uh, they're wonderful. I want to watch the producers now. I I want to watch all of his films. <laughs> I really do. Uh, Silvers, they're all great. They're really he's one. He's just so wonderful. You could just watch him all the time. Just effort. It was effortless to watch him, and it was just wonderful. Mm. Um. Anyway, so okay. see you, Gene. Thanks for all the films. The philosophy is very simple. If the thing you're doing is truly funny, you don't have to act funny doing it. Do it for real, and it'll be funnier. That's the whole thing.